Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, special guest Lindsay Chervinsky to talk about presidents and technology. Lindsay Chervinsky is the author of the really interesting book called The Cabinet about George Washington's creation of many of the norms that we associate with American government. And this week, we talked about presidents and technology, the use of tech as a way of getting the message out. And at one point, I believe she rated who would have been the best Twitter follow during that period of the revolution. Yes, we decided that Alexander Hamilton would probably have to be shut down because he couldn't stop tweeting, but that Jefferson would probably be the master tweeter of his time. And sadly, uh, she thought George Washington would probably be pretty boring. But please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson. And good to see you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, I wanted to ask you today how you kept in contact with your constituency. And was it important to you? It was important to me, of course, because in a republic, uh, the people don't govern themselves directly. They govern themselves through representatives, and those representatives are meant to listen carefully to the people, to the will of their constituents, and then to represent that will uh, in the public square. So it's very important that you either intuit what the people want and think or that you find some way to canvass their opinion directly. I didn't get home very often when I was in Philadelphia or Washington, D.C., because the travel arrangements were so primitive and the distances were so long. And so I corresponded with citizens from all over the country, and I had agents, you know, people who were close friends of mine who were traveling back and forth more often than I could, and they listened to people in taverns and public houses and coffee houses and at the post office and tried to get a sense of of my constituents so that I could, if possible, represent their views as, as fully and as uh, passionately as, as, as they felt them. As president, I didn't feel quite the same responsibility because now I wasn't president of Albemarle County or even Virginia. I was the president of the entire 6 million Americans spread from uh, all the way up to the Canadian border at New Hampshire and Vermont down to Florida and all the way west by the time I left the presidency to the Rocky Mountains, including the the city of St. Louis. So I, I needed to really lean on the Senate and the House of Representatives to fill me in on the will of the people from the various regions and economic interests of the country. Sir, I know you are somewhat aware of the technology that exists in my time, but I would tell you, sir, that there are ways that citizens can electronically post their opinions on matters of government or anything for that matter and make them available to hundreds of millions of Americans and they can do this almost anonymously i'm not sure it's it's a good thing it seems democratic but i'm not certain that those sort of anonymous announcements are are good things do you have any thoughts on that as you know, there were anonymous writers of pamphlets and op-ed pieces in my time, often using names from the ancient Roman Republic, or sometimes something like Americanus, or the Patriot, uh, or the Husbandman, things like that. And so, although we guessed at, at, at the writers, they, they were technically at least anonymous, and, and that, that can create some difficulties 
uh, because the, if you have to sign your name to something, you're a little bit more careful about your own reputation than you would be if you're presenting something without any chance of repercussion to your to your person. But I think it's really important for political leaders to stay in touch with their constituents and to know what's on their minds. And I think you have tools to enable that in your time that were unimaginable in mine. And, and I think if properly uh, chastened and channelized, could make real democracy possible in the world for the first time. So perhaps what we need is a system where people can post at any time on any subject, but um, insist upon them identifying themselves. Would that be an infringement? No, I don't think that's an infringement. I think that's a policy choice that that a newspaper or, or any other um, uh, communications entity could, could freely make. And I think it, it's, it's largely an important one. But I do think that that's not the real issue. The real issue is that people should regard themselves not only as citizens, but as responsible citizens. So what they produce, what they write, what they, what they offer up to the world should be thoughtful, evidence-based, uh, sane. It should, it should move towards the amelioration of the condition of mankind rather than simply uh, airing grievances. So what you're calling for, Mr. Jefferson, is a citizen's personal responsibility. Yes, citizenship must be more than paying your taxes and obeying the laws. There must be engagement. If you want to be a free human being, you must get into the world where the decisions are made and to make your views known as thoughtfully as possible. But other than that, uh, it's not really citizenship. It's too passive. Thank you so very much, Mr. Jefferson. You're most welcome, sir. Good day, citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. This week, we're so pleased to welcome back Lindsay Chervinsky. What did you call her, Clay? The Superstar of the East. Ah, yes, she is a senior fellow at the Center for Presidential History, an open rank fellow at the International Center for Jefferson Studies, a scholar in residence at the Institute for Thomas Paine Studies, and a professional lecturer from the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University. Did I get it correct, Lindsay? Yeah, that sounds great. David, our friend Joe Ellis is the returning champion. Right. But Lindsay is, you know, he's he had better be looking over his shoulder here. Because we're getting a lot of email from people saying more of her. No one says less of 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 um, Joe Ellis, but oh, of course not. We're we're thrilled that you're giving him a run for his money. Well, it's very good company to be in. Mm-hmm. You're back, Lindsay, and you recently had a post on Governing dot com called "A Short History of Politicians and Their Love for Technology," which caught my eye for a couple of reasons. One being that. Over 10 years ago, the first conversation I had with President Jefferson was about his love of gadgets. I think he called them gimcracks, didn't he, Clay? 
Yes, he loved his gimcracks. And if you go to Monticello, and Lindsay, I know that this is your response too. You're just kind of overwhelmed with delight that this so weird and eccentric a person was ever the president of the United States. The wine dumb waiters and the the, the calendar clock and the, the the sash windows and the alcove beds and it's you just you you just filled with a sense of what kind of a zany kind of Mister Magoo like figure was this. And I love that about Jefferson. He was a tech guy. Yeah, I go whenever I go, I'm always incredibly jealous of all of his office stuff because he had that phenomenal book rack that could rotate so he could, you know, I mean, you should see my desk next to me. I have a hundred books stacked in various precarious positions, and that's much more civilized. And he had the cool reading chair, which had the right angle. And so I'm always really jealous of his office and trying to replicate a 21st century version of that. The polygraph, which was his word processor, and we've come a long way since then. But at the time, it was like your first Apple Mac. Well, and given how much he wrote, you can understand why that would be an innovation that would be highly sought after. So, David, he also had... uh, he didn't invent this, but he, you know, as with everything else, he fiddled around with it. He had a cooler. He had a, like a, like the kind of cool, a cooler cooler, you know, that, so it was, a, it was tin and there was wool in it that you would wet and then you put butter in it. And it was meant to keep things cool as you went from plantation A to plantation B. And he was constantly tinkering with the, the insulation material and what kind of ice do you get ice to put in it? But he was so proud of that. So this is like an early experiment in refrigeration. And Jefferson was thrilled, just as we take it all for granted. But imagine if you'd never had a refrigerator before, and suddenly you did. I hadn't heard butter. I'm not sure what butter would do. Well, it melts if you don't put it in the cooler. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Back to your column, the short history of politicians and their love for technology. You talk a bit in the beginning of that, Lindsay, about uh, how everybody's on Twitter. But then later in the column, you sort of tie it into the printing press and and uh, uh, the taverns that people would meet and how, essentially how they got their news. And I thought that was very interesting. Well, thank you. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. It's become a bit of a hobby horse of mine to draw parallels between current developments and past events that have happened, when I say that something is unprecedented or we're in a new moment, I want that to mean something. I don't want to be the historian that cries wolf. And so I think it is really important when we have constantly new and evolving things to say, well, yes, this, you know, maybe the the format is new, but the idea behind it isn't necessarily an innovation. And I think that that's really important because A, it grounds us to know that we're not, you know, we're not really that special. And two, it helps us understand sort of the evolution of these ideas. And so the technology is just sort of my my recent version of this. And I think it's really important because communication is at the heart of political culture. And so while Twitter has sort of, or Facebook or other social media has become the way in which politicians most often communicate today, that's not the first time they've experimented with a new medium. And of course, newspapers and the telegraph and radio and television have all been considered this radical new thing when they've come along and, you know, older generations say, this is going to be the end of civilization. And the newer generations turn out not to destroy everything with this new technology. So that was sort of my goal with the piece. 
We've talked about this numerous times, Clay, uh, the, the place of newspapers during Jefferson's time. Lindsay, you talk about they didn't have coffee houses, they had taverns. It was men that gathered. And, and so news dissemination during that era obviously was far different than our time. Yes. So there were some coffee houses in places like New York City and Philadelphia and to a lesser extent, Baltimore, but they were really a product of city culture and came from London. London had a very vibrant coffee house culture. However, taverns were sort of the more Americanized version of that. And taverns were not what we think of today when we think of like a pub or a bar. They were a much more all-encompassing place. So yes, of course they served alcohol, but everyone drank alcohol because the water wasn't to be trusted. It was a place where you could get a meal if you were traveling. Often a tavern was also sort of a hotel or a hostel. It was a place where people gathered for conversation and camaraderie. And men and women and children were sort of coming in and out of these places all the time, frequently there as families. And literacy was not as high as it is today. And so newspapers were a central part of that tavern culture because if you were traveling, you didn't necessarily know what was happening. Often travel took a really long time, weeks, days, sometimes even months. And so you would stop at a tavern, you would maybe have a meal, and someone would maybe read aloud what was in the newspaper on that given day. And that was a way to stay up to date with what was happening or to learn what was happening if you couldn't read the text yourself. You know, another thing that you, in your in your column, you started talking about, you know, what politician isn't on Twitter now. Good point. And, and then later in it, you talk about Alexander Hamilton and how he would write under pen names, which is something that Clay and I have discussed many times. So it's kind of like Hamilton was an anonymous poster. Which is sort of what social media gives, maybe not so much Twitter, but social media gives the pe- gives people the opportunity to say whatever they want and they not take responsibility for it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and there is a, an awful lot of anonymous stuff online, which generally leads people to say things they probably wouldn't say if they had to say it to someone face to face. But I think we can all be very glad that Alexander Hamilton didn't have Twitter. I think he would have been <laughs> insufferable on Twitter. <laughs> Uh, you know, just constantly tweeting. Um, there's there have been some really funny debates among historians online about who would have been who would have been a good Twitter follow. I think Benjamin Franklin probably would have been a pretty interesting Twitter follow. Um, I think George Washington would have been a very boring Twitter follow because he would have never said anything scandalous. Was you know how he was. And Hamilton would have been the person that you would have had to press mute on because he just would not stop. Well, that's interesting. We've devolved into a discussion about who'd be a good Twitter follower. What about Jefferson, Clay? Well, Jefferson, of course, had that capacity to write the short, really extraordinary sentence. You know, if you took the Declaration of Independence or, say, the top 15 Jefferson letters, you could extract from them um, sentences that would not only work on Twitter today, but before they expanded the the number of characters that you could use. Jefferson, in a sense, was born for this because he had the capacity to turn a phrase that uh, that invoked lots more than the number of words that he had. And Jefferson's language is seldom aggressive. His is more nation-building. And so there's kind of, he's the inspiring one of the founding fathers. You can imagine John Adams um, trying to write a tweet and then getting to like 
4,000 words. And Abigail's like, you're going to have to cut that down to 400 and some. And, and then he, well, I'll, I'll, I'll post it as a file. Uh, I'll do a video. Uh, I'll blog. Uh, th- there's no way they can understand my concerns about these things in a couple of hundred words. But Jefferson would take that as a discipline, and he would and he would be able to do it. But I, you know, we can have a lot of fun with this. It's like if if the founding fathers were golfers, which ones would they be? Or if the founding, you can have a lot of fun with this. But but I want to make. I just want to ask Lindsay a question about this. So so the, okay, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We get that. But um, two things. One is, how do representatives stay in touch with their constituents? Now, constituents really have a chance to stay in touch with their representative because the representatives are newsletters and e-newsletters and posts and, and Facebook and Twitter and so on. And they can actually weigh in. And those it's not clear what actually ever gets to Senator X or Representative R. But, but people have access in an unprecedented way to... The process. If you want to follow uh, what's happening with the infrastructure bill, hour by hour, you can. That was not possible. If you're living in rural uh, Georgia in Jefferson's time, you have no real idea what's happening. And maybe you go to your coffee house or your local tavern and someone has a newspaper that's a month and a half old and they read something by Camillus or Publius or some other Romanesque kind of uh, anonymous name and then they talk about it but it's old news by the time it gets to you and it, it it's it's high-minded political theory or political argumentation it's not how's this bill doing and how can I make my will known so we're in a position now to really know what our constituents think if we choose to in an unprecedented way and the other thing that I would ask you about Lindsay is is you know, in, in Jefferson's time, if you really, really, really wanted to, you could get some money together and create a press. One of the reasons why Jefferson's party won in 1800 is that they, they sort of did an Obama. They got printing presses going all over the country, and the Federalists were appalled that mere citizens could have printing presses. They kind of made an end run around the, the establishment press system in the country, and it was incredibly effective. And by the way, people knew who these anonymous people were they guessed there was a lot of guessing game who's Camillus who's you know but basically you knew Hamilton was always saying something and Adams was always saying something and Jefferson never but his lackeys Madison and Monroe and others would be speaking on his behalf so we're going to take a break here but when we come back I want to see you to reflect on this yes things are the same in that we use the the best technologies of our time to advance our political interests and to and to and to speak our minds but we're living in a brave new world too and i really want you to talk about that and we'll be back to rejoin this conversation in just a minute you're listening to the thomas jefferson hour
Welcome back to the special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, our young champion, threatening Joe Ellis' hegemony on this program. Uh, Lindsay Chervinsky is here, and he's a recent piece in governing about politicians and tech. And we're talking about uh, continuities in American culture and discontinuities. And so my question to you is, how do we how do we hack our way through this kind of unprecedented moment where the electronification of culture has really been a huge small d democratic tool that anybody anywhere can get into the equation? Well, I think to a certain extent, this process has been happening for a while. And when we think about the role of our representatives, because we do have a representative democracy, initially it was conceived of that our, you know, the very best, the very elite in society would be elected and they would make decisions on behalf of their constituents. Now, sometimes they would get feedback that those decisions were very poor decisions. And, you know, John Quincy Adams lost his Senate seat for supporting the Louisiana Purchase and the embargo during Jefferson's presidency. But most of the time, it was sort of understood that your representatives were going to lead the people. And that was partly because they knew what was happening and they knew what was going on and they had access to way more information and education than sort of the average person. As you said, in Georgia, you were going to be months behind the news. That concept of a political relationship has shifted over the last 200 years such that we really nowadays often expect our representatives to do what we want them to. And in a lot of ways that makes, you know, sense because we are a democratic society and it's uh, supposed to be, you know, representative and if we don't like what they say we're supposed to be able to vote them out. But sometimes that also leads to some unfortunate consequences representatives making choices that maybe they know are wrong and yet do them anyway because they're afraid of their constituents or they're afraid of losing support. So having that sort of moral courage is sort of, to a certain extent, mostly gone by the wayside. But I think that that process has really been a long and drawn out one and has been facilitated by technology because, as you said, now people can get access to what is going on all the time. And that was certainly... Um, true when, you know, the telegraph was created and all of a sudden newspapers could have much more up-to-date information about what was happening in Washington, D.C. On the flip side of that, the publication side, that anyone can publish their thoughts regardless of whether or not they're worth anything. When people ask me about, you know, has the news ever been this divisive and have people ever, you know, struggled with this sort of like fake news concepts, the answer is yes. In the 1790s, if we look at the newspapers, they were filled with lies. I mean, and people had no compunction about just printing garbage. I think the difference was that people had a pretty good understanding that there was such thing as a partisan press, that there were some newspapers that were a little bit more neutral, but that some were outwardly partisan. And I think there was a better maybe media literacy at the time, I think that's really where we're struggling today. I, I think that a democratization of access isn't necessarily a bad thing because it means that voices we haven't necessarily heard from or have been silenced by the traditional gatekeepers are able to share their stories, and that's an important part of the American experience. But we need to be able to have media literacy and understand if we're reading something and you know maybe it says that 
you know, something, there are aliens that have come down to Washington, D.C., and they've decided to change all the light colors, and so you should not come because you're going to get into car accidents, that should probably set off a red flag that, you know, maybe this is not a particularly reliable source. I think that's the part that our our society is really struggling with, is that most actors online now are not operating under the journalistic ethos that they used to. In the 1920s, you know, being a journalist was this sort of higher calling and you were supposed to stick to a certain amount of ethics and pursue a neutral truth and and uncover the story. And to be sure, there are still journalists that do that and pursue those stories and, and operate under those guidelines. But there are a lot of people who don't. And I think that's the piece that we're really missing today. A couple of things there that really interest me. And so I want to make sure we get to them um, because I want to pick your brain. First about democratic theory. So what you're saying, I think, is that for a long time under the American constitutional system, the idea was that we would entrust you to be our representative and we would give you a lot of latitude to do the right thing as you understood the right thing. And that was a broad grant of trust. It wasn't, let me tell me about every bill, the infrastructure bill, tell me about the tariff bill, tell me about, we, we, we didn't demand that of you. We believed that you would lead because you, because you represented the best of, of us in some way. And that's not quite Jefferson's theory, but but he's not that far away from it either. Deference, a culture of representative deference. Today, that's that's gone, and now people have. There are a lot of one-issue people who are writing "How dare you" letters all the time, and there are people that expect their representative to represent them, not even their district, but my views. And if you're not, you are a traitor. You know, you 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 don't deserve. To be in office, how do you how do you think about that? So, does does a, a republic depend upon a level? Jefferson said once that the about the House of Representatives, the first distillation of the will of the people is seldom distinguished, but the second one, when they when they then create a senator, when they then create an ambassador, that's a better choice. And so he had this politics of deference that the best people would would probably wind up getting that trust from the citizen body and that they would make the right choice even when it was an unpopular one and the people would basically say, I don't really like or understand what you did, but I trust you and so I'm going to go with this. Well, I kind of have uh, mixed feelings about it, as I suppose most Americans do. I'm not sure that the current political system encourages the best people to run for office most of the time. You receive a lot of criticism at best. At worst, you receive hate mail and death threats and your family receives threats. You're under scrutiny all the time. It's far less lucrative than some other positions that you could pursue in business or industry. And it frankly doesn't seem like all that much fun. It seems pretty terrible. So I, I have no doubt that there are people who are called to higher service. And they and I do believe that those public servants are there and they do exist. I don't think that's everyone. So the problem then with trusting people who aren't the best people is that mm, I'm not sure I want to do that. Um, the second part of it is that not everyone should be making choices for the government. I mean, there are people out there who they're, you know, they're humans, they have value, that doesn't necessarily mean they're good decision makers. And whether or not we're all able to acknowledge that we're those people is, I think, a different question. But there are some people who should not be making choices that affect foreign policy or economic policy or immigration policy. 
So I, I know I'm kind of evading your answer because the truth is that I really don't know. And I would like to think that a system where some people have, you know, more immediate representation and then there's this higher selection makes sense. I'm just not sure we're really there now. Yeah, so if you take something like the Iran deal, what do I know about the Iran deal, really? I mean, I'm a pretty well-informed human being, but I don't know the intricacies of this. I, and I know that John Kerry and the Obama administration and our European partners spent hundreds, thousands of hours with some of the best minds in the world trying to think this thing through. And they eventually came to the best thing they thought they could get accomplished, given the circumstances, the geopolitical realities of the world. And then you have like a, someone who says, yeah, there was a, they took a whole pallet of, of millions of dollars and just gave it to the Iranians. And that's it. That's the whole, that's the argument. So average people or unaverage people, well-educated people don't know enough about the intricacies of the Centers for Disease Control, epidemiology, tariff law, global climate questions, our relations with the Kurds or the Syrians. Um, the intricacies of our of our uh, trade um, imbalances with with China and so on. Almost nobody knows anything about this worth having. That doesn't feel like democracy in any useful sense of the term. In other words, the whole theory of a republic is that the people are reasonably thoughtful and reasonably well informed, or they hire the best people and stay out of the way. But today, it's kind of the worst of both worlds. People aren't very well informed, and they're amazingly loud about their opinions, and they're intolerant of anything that veers from the talking point. Very well said. Um, I think part this is a, related to a similar but very much entwined issue, which is sort of the death of respect for expertise. Issues like foreign policy and disease prevention and fiscal policy, they require years and decades of study to fully comprehend. And, you know, foreign policy, when we're talking about dealing with all of these different nations, each of them has their own history and their own culture and their own language and their own political calculations. I don't know enough to say what we should necessarily be doing with every single one. I want to learn from the people who do. I want to try and make an informed decision, but I certainly don't want to be the one negotiating it because I would do a terrible job and I would ruin everything. And so for me, I think that when the issue is something that is complex, and frankly, we live in a very complex world, so most of these issues are going to be complex, we have to seek out expertise. We have to trust expertise. And if you are concerned about, you know, being siloed, especially in an issue like foreign policy, you can seek out a diversity of opinions. There are experts that are on different sides of the aisle or, or come from different backgrounds or have served in both Republican and Democratic administrations. And you can try and get a bunch of different perspectives, but you should 100% be listening to the experts. And so I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that is... When we think about American voices yelling about things that they don't know all that much about, I think that really gets at the heart of that issue. You both bring up fascinating points and fascinating comments. And I have to ask, is there any way you can tie that into Jefferson's time? How did people feel about experts or did they look for that that expertise? That's a good question. Well, I think there was a, a, a distinct sense of social hierarchy in the way that we would find very uncomfortable today. You know, yeah, when we could, think of... Could you imagine a citizen in 1775 saying, well, I'm not sure if we should separate from Britain. We need to hear from somebody about that. <laughs> well, to be sure, they 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 had a lot of their own opinions as well. I think 
it is important to remember that most Americans at the time, while they certainly had ideas and they often would participate in the rabble rousing and, you know, certainly participated in the confluence of events in the revolution, they were not all on Twitter espousing their ideas about foreign policy. And foreign policy took place in closed rooms and treaties were delivered and that Americans had a lot to say about those treaties. But they weren't necessarily, I think, as influential in the process because there was limited access to information. So when Jefferson was in France, he was receiving reports from the United States, maybe monthly, if the ships were on time. And so he was having to operate under his best assumptions about what was the right thing to do for the United States and hope that the next set of directions confirmed those assumptions. But he wasn't getting the daily Twitter messages telling him he was an idiot because he was meeting to negotiate with French representatives. So there's a case of, of, of the aristoi, the natural aristocrat. You know, everyone understood that Jefferson was one of the most gifted men in America, that he, that he, he, was, he was broadly in, informed about the world. Everyone was a little suspicious of Jefferson's politics, but they realized that he had discipline and that if he were a representative of the U.S., he would represent the U.S. interests in France, even if they thwarted his own. Whereas James Monroe wasn't as disciplined. And when he was our, effectively, ambassador to France, he sided too much with the French Revolution and got himself crosswise with the Washington administration because he was exceeding his brief. And Jefferson was much more disciplined than that. He had his views, but he kept them to his letters to Madison and so on. But he represented the U.S. and everyone knew that Jefferson was, at that point in his career, an incredibly reliable representative of the best interests of the United States and the interests of the administration that put him there. When he came back, became a Secretary of State, things began to unravel a little bit because Jefferson got it into his head that the Washington administration led by Hamilton was taking the country into a kind of monarchical path, that the, that the, the purpose of the American Revolution was going to be destroyed if it continued. And then he began to behave less admirably. He felt he had to, that he had no choice as an ardent lover of the principles of 76. But but he began to behave less admirably at that point. And that's where the doubts about Jefferson really began to creep in. So there were really two doubts about Jefferson. One was, he's he's not really a manly man. You know, he fled when Cornwallis and Tarleton attacked Virginia. And the, maybe he doesn't quite have the right stuff. And that always kind of haunted Jefferson, that he was, I'm using terms that are kind of icky, but he, he was always a little effeminate for the manly men of the country, a little bit too feline, a little bit too highly cultured, a little bit too, you know, might be drinking sherry rather than having a beer in the pub. And so that was one of the raps against Jefferson. The other one was that he's, he's, he, he's, he's unreliable, he's duplicitous, that he, he won't tell you you're wrong or that I profoundly disagree with you. But then one of his lackeys will attack you in the papers. That Jefferson is like sphinx-like; that he he won't reveal himself. But but you know that that he is not with you on all questions. And there, there's this radical streak in him that's a little bit troubling. So those things began to grow over time with Jefferson. But to take another example, and I really am interested in in um, Lindsay's response to this. Think of John Adams when he sent the second peace mission to France. The country was ready for war. Hamilton and his pals were pushing hard for war, 
I mean, really, um, putting a full court press on the Adams administration, trying to whip up public support for a war with France. And Adams instinctively knew that 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 was a mistake, and so he decided to send an unprecedented second peace mission to France, and it worked. It probably cost him re-election. But that's the exact example of what a Republican leader is supposed to do, small-r Republican, is supposed to, to, to do the right thing, whatever the political fallout. And Adams kind of took a certain satisfaction that he was repudiated by the people because it proved that he was a man of the deepest virtue, that he belonged in, in, the, in the pages of Plutarch, and so that's the old style, isn't it, Lindsay? That's, what, that's the ideal of the early American Republic, that you have this kind of patriot king who is, re- renounces power but does the right thing no matter what and, and is not listening in the wind. And they regarded Jefferson as not fully on board with that paradigm. And then you get to Andrew Jackson and the paradigm is shattered. Well, I think that that's absolutely right. And, you know, Adams had a little bit of a history of actually doing that. So when he and when he met, uh, meets up with John Jay to negotiate the end of the revolution, they were under strict orders not to negotiate a peace treaty without Partic- without France's participation. They were their allies. They were supposed to work with them. But France really was okay with the United States being a pretty weak player and actually preferred the United States not to be a strong, you know, independent power. They kind of wanted them to be subservient and and reliant on France. And so France wasn't really negotiating in the United States' best interests. And Jay and Adams basically say, we're going to do what we think is best. And they negotiated a separate peace with Great Britain which then ultimately proved to be absolutely the right thing to do because France wasn't negotiating in good faith and they were eventually um, applauded for doing that, but it took a while and they were, you know, sort of in trouble for a little bit. So Adams had a history of sort of saying, this is not the right course of action. I'm going to pursue the right course of action regardless of the costs, which I kind of really adore about him because it's just such a uh, stubborn, intense way of living um, and his his son certainly inherited that. Not too many people are John Adams. Not too many people are John Quincy Adams. And they were incredibly well-educated and incredibly well-traveled, had been all over the globe and were, you know, brilliant and thoughtful and full of virtue. They made a ton of mistakes and they made a ton of enemies, but they were desperately trying to do the right thing for the nation that sort of leadership, I think, is great if you have someone like that in the position. If you have someone who is not acting under those sort of virtuous circumstances, it gets a lot trickier. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, our special guest is Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky, and we're so pleased to have you here. We're going to take a short break. We'll return to this conversation in just a moment.
welcome back to this special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Star with our new um, friend and, and a frequent guest, Lindsay Chervinsky, uh, who has a piece in Governing about presidents and tech. just want to get back to David's question for a minute, Jefferson and tech. He was really high tech. So not only did he have that great chair and his lazy Susan desk and his, his five-sided book stand and all those gimcracks, which are really efficient tools for a person who spends eight hours a day at a desk, but he also... Uh, had this polygraph, this this pantograph, this many writer, and he had a copying machine that was very, very crude, but he could make a kind of copy of some of his correspondence. And then he had, during the time he was governor of Virginia, he wanted news from the front, which was then was in the Carolinas, and he created it almost like a Pony Express. He had these, these riders who would race from uh, Richmond down to the front and back with the, the latest of news so Jefferson could stay in touch with all of this. You know, he was constantly trying to figure out what are the fastest ways to communicate and the most efficient ways, and how can I make sure that um, that I create time-saving devices. He also had his encryptions. So he had his, his, his encryption wheel, and he had an encryption graph so that he could write coded letters. And his coding system was so brilliant that it was used up until World War II in some quarters. You know, So Jefferson is like, He's high tech. What he doesn't have is a computer chip. What he doesn't have is plastic. What he doesn't have is, you know, modern machining tools. But he did with with the limited materials and tools that were available to him in his time, he squeezed every bit of high tech out of it and used it to his advantage. And then again, in the election of 1800, he and Madison realized that they were not going to get the support they needed through the establishment press. So then they, they, they really encouraged and funded small printing press operations to spring up around the country to go around that system. This is something Jefferson had that Adams didn't have, that Washington didn't have, that Madison and Monroe didn't have. Uh, Jefferson is unique in that regard, don't you think, Lindsay? I do. I think that he had a certain entrepreneurial mind that was constantly looking for innovation, um, you know, Washington was always looking for farming innovation and was welcome, you know, welcomed those sorts of new ideas. He was constantly trying to read about what farmers in England were doing, but he wasn't necessarily the one coming up with them. He was very appreciative of them and was quick to adopt them, but he wasn't necessarily innovating in that same way. And Alexander Hamilton was incredibly innovative as well, but his innovations came more in the financial sector, of course, and then we, he thought about how to write and communicate. And so I think one of Jefferson's most appealing characteristics was his interest in science, his interest in technology, and his willingness to tinker, sort of like Benjamin Franklin, but like a generation later. Um, and he really, I think, applied that tinkering to all aspects of his life. You know, what's the takeaway from your article in Governing? What should we be thinking about as we move into the, the sort of the maybe third phase of the digital revolution and social media? What are the promises for American democracy? And what are the threats to American democracy as you see them, Lindsay? Those are some big questions. That's why, that's, that's, <laughs> that's why you're here. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, so the, the real takeaway is that technology has been evolving since, you know, sort of the beginning of humankind. And communication has been a place that technological innovation has naturally sort of flowed to. And politicians have understandably tried to take advantage of those innovations 
from the very beginning. I start with the printing press and how that revolutionized the world, and I take it up through social media. So I hope it does provide people some comfort to know that change and the way that we communicate is constantly evolving, and that's okay, and that's the nature of humanity. That doesn't mean that there aren't unique things about each generation of change. And to be sure, Twitter is a, Twitter and, and Facebook have presented new challenges that as a society we haven't yet fully figured out how to grapple with and the potential and the peril of those things. The big takeaway for me that's a positive for democracy is it provides access to people we wouldn't necessarily have access to otherwise. We tend to live in fairly siloed communities. We don't necessarily hear voices that are all that different from our own, but I can connect with a reader on social media in Europe, or I can connect with a reader in Latin America, and I would have had no way to meet them were it not for this thing called the internet and this thing called social media. So that's really great, and I can learn from people that are so different than me and have experiences that are so different than mine. The downside of that is there's so much information and not all of it can be trusted, that sometimes it's hard to know how to turn it off. It's hard to know where to go to look for answers. And that media literacy, which we've talked about, is is missing now more than ever because there is such an enormous flood of this information. And so to me, I think that's the real peril is we no longer have an agreed upon truth. It used to be that we could kind of all agree that science and certain people could be relied upon and, and that was our central truth. We no longer really have that as a society. And I think that that is a real problem. And I'm not sure we have a solution just yet. Uh, Lindsay, let me ask you a, an unfair question. But one I know you'll have something interesting to say about. You know, you could say no printing press, no reformation. Uh, certainly a different kind of reformation. Luther was publishing a book every couple of weeks there for a number of years. And, and he was a brilliant user of social media, as it was understood in 1515. I think it's fair to say Donald Trump would have had a much harder path to the presidency without Twitter. He might have made it, but but Twitter really was the the tool. That was his lever to get himself into that position. Is it okay for social media to shut him down? I mean, if, what if social media shut FDR's uh, fireside talks down? We're not going to not going to broadcast those on the radio. We don't like your your leftist views. We don't like your alphabet soup New Deal. I know that these are private entities, but it must trouble you at some libertarian core of your being to see what's effectively um, a form of corporate censorship. Um, because the Enlightenment's ideal was a free marketplace of ideas. And if, if Donald Trump's ideas are abhorrent, we ought to be able to refute them, right? What bothers me is not that they shut him down. I have no problem with social media companies having rules. What bothers me is the inconsistent application of those rules. I think that it is totally appropriate and frankly warranted for television companies and channels and social media to say, here are the things that you are not allowed to say on our platforms. You know, you cannot deny the Holocaust. You cannot use hate speech that causes, you know, that's death threats. You cannot do these things. But they have to stick to that. And I think that it, the where a lot of people struggle with is, you know, Twitter, I think, has been a little bit more upfront about what they're trying to do. Facebook has been very fussy. 
and he broke their rules for years before they were finally applied. So I think that to me is where I struggle. And this is when I said, you know, we're sort of still figuring out how to deal with these mediums because they are new. That's, I think, where the problem is, is it's okay to have limitations. We are not allowed to go into a crowded fire or clouded theater and scream fire. We have, you know, socially, we have accepted that there are things you are not allowed to do. That, I think, should apply to the internet. What needs to be thought through is, are those rules clearly defined and are they clearly applied? And I would actually argue that when someone has a huge platform or, you know, a giant megaphone, it's even more important to apply them to that person because they can reach so many more people. So, you know, I don't think that the president of the United States should get a bunch of extra do-overs just because they're the president of the United States. They, you know, they need to live by the same rules as everyone else. So that's where I'm kind of falling on this particular issue and, you know, uh, we can we can get into the larger conversation about the First Amendment and free speech, but I think that any society, if it's a civilized one, has limitations to those things. They just need to be applied consistently and fairly. Okay, denying the Holocaust is one thing, but just an uh, exit question on this. What if I what if I lose the election and I say incessantly the election was stolen, the election was stolen, the election was stolen? Um, is that is that does that rise to the level of prohibited Twitter speech? Well, I think if you said the election was stolen, the election was stolen, uh, it probably would not. If you said we should do something about it, we should, there should be a revolution, we're going to gather and you, you know, encourage violence in all these various ways, that I think is where the line uh, starts to to come up on us. And there is no doubt, you know, if we're, we're both kind of alluding to the January 6th thing, I think a bit here, and there is no doubt that when you listen to the affidavits of the people who have been arrested, they believed firmly that he was calling them to action. So um, generally, I like to, you know, believe people when they when they when they speak and take them at their word. And if they believe he was calling them to violent action, then that's how those words should be interpreted. Thomas Paine might might have might have some trouble with your your point of view. (laughs) Well, that's true. But, you know, the revolution was incredibly violent. We, We like to think of it as this very whitewashed, happy PG experience. But war and revolution are never PG. David. You brought up Thomas Paine. I was hoping we could get back to that, seeing as you are a scholar in residence at the Institute for Thomas Paine Studies. But there needs to be a level of citizenship responsibility. And I have to respond to what the two of you were just talking about as, say, someone listening to this conversation who would say, well, that's all good and well, but who's going to make those rules? David, you're channeling your inner Jefferson because he's the one who said, if we need guardians, who will guard us against the guardians? You know, who gets to make those choices? Who gets to make those discriminations about what is acceptable and what is unacceptable? And that's the conundrum of having final arbiters is that you want them to be people out of a civics text and they turn out to be regular human beings. I do want to bring up Thomas Paine. I'm hoping that both of you would agree to maybe a future program where we discuss Thomas Paine. I am fascinated by him. I, it was about a year and a half ago, I did a audiobook reading of Common Sense just to give to our Jefferson Hour listeners at somewhere on the website. He was a fascinating character, and there's quite a history of a relationship between Jefferson and Thomas Paine. So may I suggest that for a future conversation? Absolutely. I do have one thing I have to say to your question, though. Good. Which is that we all know that we shouldn't drink and drive. 
and yet people do, and we've still passed laws against it. And I think that's because when we enter into a society, you know, this is the whole, you know, like agreeing to be governed type thing. We agree that there are to be, there are rules that we sometimes don't want to follow. Sometimes I'd like to drive faster than 65, to be honest, but I'm supposed to kind of, you know, stick to roughly that number. And that's how society goes. You're right to ask the question, though, of who is supposed to make those rules. And I think that's the 21st century conundrum because we have rules about what newspapers can print. We have rules about what television stations can play play on their air. We don't really yet have widely accepted rules about what social media is supposed to govern. And we trust those organizations to create the rules. And they are obviously struggling with that. So I think that is sort of the conundrum that we've not yet solved. And if you're if you're a conservative on the right, your view is that these social media organizations are largely controlled by establishment leftists, and therefore the, the game is rigged against the right. That doesn't mean I don't agree with what Twitter and Facebook have done in some cases, but it is a really complex problem, I think. And the notion... The easy answer that a private corporation gets to decide, no shirts, no shoots, no service, that kind of thing. I don't think that really any longer applies because these platforms are so gigantic. And I don't know how many people are on Facebook, Lindsay, but it's everyone. Yeah, no, I think I think that you're right. I think that and the people who, you know, create these companies, Mark Zuckerberg is not a political theorist. He is not a humanist. He is not he has not spent decades studying the deeply complex issues behind these things. He created a platform when he was a kid and has since sort of struggled to figure out how to deal with that success. I think that they're on the right track. They have this new board of governors, which sort of makes rulings about their decisions. I would really like them to make, to to empower the board of governors, which they're not really supposed to do right now, but to empower them to create those rules. Because the board of governors is filled with, journalists, professionals, lawyers, people who have studied these issues for a really long time and have made their careers out of these questions and would be the type of people who I think we would trust to try and make decisions in a thoughtful way. Um, That hasn't yet happened, but I think that would be probably a good first step. Before we run out of time, allow me to do my job, which I haven't done very well to this point, and that is you have so much to offer to people, Lindsay, and I want to make sure that they know where they can find it. Oh, well, thank you. That's very kind of you. So I think the first place I would say is my website, which is lindsaychervinsky.com. You can sign up for my newsletter there, which is called Imperfect Union, and I send out an essay every month and links to podcasts like this one and articles and everything that I've written. So it's a good way to stay on top of everything. And of course, because we've been talking about social media, you can find me on most channels. Twitter is my favorite. So my handle there is LM Chervinsky, and I'm pretty active there and always happy to engage with Thomas Jefferson Hour listeners. I know there have been some and they've commented, and so I'm always happy to see them there. And well, we mustn't forget the first time you were on the Jefferson Hour was to discuss your then new book, The Cabinet. Tell people about that. The Cabinet explores the creation of this institution outside of the Constitution. It was George Washington's creation, but of course, Thomas. Jefferson was the first Secretary of State and an, uh, a very avid participant in the first cabinet. 
And uh, it is available pretty much anywhere you buy books, whether it be online or your local bookstore. And I don't have an official date yet, but I have, this is a, a top secret news for Thomas Jefferson Hour listeners. I have heard that the paperback will be out in the spring. So don't have a date yet, but if you want a first edition hardcover, you can get it now. Lindsay, you couldn't have known this when you when you wrote the book, but the norms, the norms, non-constitutional structures were going to become such a, a central topic of our time that so that for example, the filibuster is a norm. It's not a constitutional thing. Judicial review is a norm. That there are nine justices rather than four or six or 30 is a norm. And so the norms were being laid down by one George Washington. And so much of it is is unspecified or underspecified in the Constitution that your book is an important reminder of how much that we have two, at least two constitutions. We have the one that you could, the 4,000 words you can pin down, highly elusive words, it turns out. And then there is this whole world of norms that, that kind of drive us nuts because you can't find the, the proof text in the Constitution. That's so right. And so many of those norms in a way we don't really appreciate actually started with Washington. And so I think that that is something I really do hope people take away from the book is that when we think of our political system, it had to start somewhere. Uh, and as you said, very little of it is written down on the Constitution. And those words are often quite fuzzy. So starting with Washington is usually a pretty good place to begin if you want to really understand how it works. I got to thank you both for a fascinating conversation this week. I've enjoyed it so much. And Lindsay, you're such a delight. I hope we get to have you on again very soon. Well, we do because she's agreed to come on and talk about none other than Thomas Paine, Jefferson's pal, and one of the most extraordinary men in the history of the 18th century. So we'll do all of that. Lindsay Travinsky, thank you. David Swenson, the semi-permanent guest host of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, as always, thank you. And to all of you who listened, we appreciate you. We'll see you next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.